welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. Today, we got a Q&A. Cool. So, we got a mixture of questions from the question submit form on in the show notes and on Instagram. So, all right. So go leave us more questions. I mean, we get a ton, so thank you for that. But just remember, guys, I always want to say it. There's a link in the description, so if you want to leave an in-depth uh, question, because on sometimes on Instagram, it gets lost in the DMs, or it's just in that little tiny box and bubble. Uh, so if you want to leave a topic or a interview guest suggestion or question or anything like that, just remember... There is a link in the description that says Ask Boom Boom. Just click that, fill the form out, and you can let us know anything you want to hear. Cool. All right, cool. We will get going on the first question, and it says, How do you feel about dairy in my diet as a 49-year-old near menopause? Hormones are a bit crazy right now. So I actually pulled up something to prove what I'm about to say because I I did review this question before. Um this is something I've talked to people about in different scenarios, uh, menopause as well as PCOS and thyroid dysfunction, Hashimoto's, things like that. Uh, you know, there's some of these that there's a lot of pseudoscience claims about what you can and cannot have. And therefore, people end up getting themselves into a predicament that ends up leading to worse results long term because – Ultimately, so a lot of people, for example, during, uh, I was actually just talking to somebody who's uh, going to be working with us now in coaching, and she had Hashimoto's, and she was following an AIP diet, an autoimmune protocol diet. Great. Autoimmune protocol makes sense. Um, It's basically just a very, very restrictive elimination diet, which is fine, but what we have to remember is that Hashimoto's, thyroid dysfunction, PCOS, things that could be caused by food intolerances, maybe, or, or be more flared up or, or exaggerated w- symptoms when we have certain food intolerances. When we remove all these things, we also create a huge calorie deficit, and that places another stress on the body. So a lot of times, like in this woman's situation, she went AIP. She did feel better because she removed everything. I mean, you don't eat dairy. You don't have alcohol. You don't have beans. You don't have grains. I mean, you just remove everything. But she also went into a, an extremely big deficit because she can barely eat anything, right? You're basically eating like vegetables and meat. And what happens after a small amount of time is like, yeah, you get rid of the digestive or the gut health or whatever issues you have from the food, but then you increase stress long-term and then you go into obviously metabolic adaptation and weight loss as a sustainable endeavor becomes extremely hard. Mm. So the reason I I preframe it with that is because it's the same thing with menopause. People think like, intermittent fasting or cutting out dairy and a lot of these things, there's no science behind these for those individuals. There is science behind intermittent fasting. We've done multiple research reviews on that, but there's not really any specific research and not enough if there is any that supports intermittent fasting for menopausal women, yeah. right? There's, uh, in her case, maybe premenopausal because she said she was about to be. Um, and the same thing applies for dairy. In fact, so what I answered on Instagram really briefly to her was that there's no research to support that dairy is an issue. In fact, dairy is a great protein source and it's full of micronutrients. So unless you're lactose intolerant, whether you're going through menopause or not, whether you're male, female, young, old, doesn't matter, fat loss, most growth, there's nothing wrong with dairy as long as you are not lactose intolerant, which you're listening to this and you're lactose intolerant, you know, because you damn near throw up every time you have dairy. Like you clearly get sick, right? Yeah. Your body's not producing the right enzymes to break that down. But 
In a study in nearly 750 postmenopausal women, those who ate more dairy and animal protein had significantly higher bone density than those who ate less. Dairy may also help improve sleep for them. A recent study, uh, a review study found that high foods, uh, foods high in the amino acid glycine found in milk and cheese and uh, and different dairy products, for example, promoted deeper sleep in menopausal women. Um, And then it kind of goes on. There's another one about the link between calcium, vitamin D and dairy in menopausal women, so on and so forth. But the point is, is there's actually more research supporting that you should be consuming dairy than there is not. So... For you listening, uh, I can't remember your name uh, specifically, but um, I think it was just her Instagram name. Yeah, Wheezy Biker. So, dairy it up. Yeah, as long as you're not lactose intolerant, which again, you'll know if you're intolerant. And the same thing applies with food intolerances. Like people talk about food sensitivities, and a lot of times those food sensitivity tests are kind of bullshit. If you have an allergy or an intolerance or an issue with food, you will know, right? Like you eat something and you do not feel good. Remove it from your diet if you feel better. It was that thing. The problem with going straight paleo or AIP is that you remove so many things. If you don't reintroduce those things shortly after one by one, you have no idea what was the cause of it or if any of those things were even the cause of it, right? So menopause has nothing to do with food. You're going through menopause because of age, but dairy is actually going to help you um, in your body composition pursuits as well as menopausal symptoms and issues and stuff like that. Mm. So nothing wrong with it at all. Gotcha. Okay, well, uh, we'll go on to the next one. It says, The Girl with the Great Dane. What a name. For nutrition, do you work with people aiming to transition from counting macros to intuitive eating? So, was- Yes, we do. Um, it just depends on the person. You know, I think that everybody has a different goal and everybody has a different idea of what a fitness lifestyle looks like. You know, um, For example, I personally can see it being very easy to consistently track macros for the next decade of my life if I wanted to, because I track my training, I track my nutrition, I track my motivation, my fulfillment, my stress, I I track my weight, like I just track things in in apps and in sheets and shit like that. I like data, so Mm -hmm. it's easy for me, this is a lifestyle, and actually tracking macros makes things easier from a flexibility perspective, so I can, for example, like uh, as we're recording this tomorrow's Thanksgiving, I'm definitely not fucking tracking my macros at Thanksgiving, but because I track macros, I know what is overdoing it, what's not overdoing it. And I also know how to pull back a little bit the days leading up to it so that I can just make a little room because I'm definitely going to have a few slices of pumpkin pie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And now I, my weekly calories bounce out. So it's actually a more sustainable lifestyle approach to me. Now we do get clients who are just like, I just fucking hate the app. So how do I work around this. And it's like, well, you use them as a way to get to the end goal and then you transition out. Just like uh, if you create a budget plan for something, you create a budget plan to get to blank result. Buy a new blank. Go on a trip to blank. But once you do that, you don't continue to have that budget plan unless you create a new goal, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Now, everybody has like a bills budget plan. It's probably just a safe bet. So you don't going to debt yeah. right, for your bills. Um, but like for a short-term goal that usually you just use the numbers to get to that single place. Um, now afterwards in this example, if you save money really well, you get to your goal and then you say, screw the budget completely. Guess what? You're going to have such bad money habits that you're going to end up going in debt or losing your money or not being able to save and overspending because you didn't actually process and learn what the habits were leading into it, right? So we have to not be ignorant and we actually have to educate ourselves while we go through this macro tracking phase. Once we get to our goal, it's about 
reversing out of that. And I think with, with most of our clients, we do it in one of two ways. Either A, they come to us and they don't need to lose a bunch of weight. So we don't maybe go into a big deficit. Maybe they actually needed a reverse diet or something like that. And in that scenario, once we get to the end goal, which may have been maintenance, but increasing calories, whatever, it's just slowly removing tracking through a few habits, which I'll say in a sec. But the other scenario is when somebody does lose weight with us, they go through a deficit period. We have to reverse diet them before we can go into intuitive eating. It's very, very difficult to reverse diet intuitively because you just finished a diet. You're still in a deficit. Your body's still stressed. It literally wants to eat more food. If you're intuitive about that, you're just going to eat more. You're going to gain weight. So usually in this scenario, you get to your goal. We have to use macros still, and we have to reverse diet you by actually being methodical with your numbers over the course of three to six months, however long the reverse diet takes for that person, let's say. Um, and it could be less, could be more. Uh, and then we slowly go into the habits of reversing out of tracking macros. So that would typically look like, I always like with my clients taking a a multi-day period. So like looking for an event, like, do you have a birthday coming up? Do you have a vacation? Do you have a reason to go out of town? Do you have a few days where you're like, okay, Thanksgiving, right? So I have a client for Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's like a multi-Thanksgiving family event, you know, because probably different relatives and shit yeah. like that. We're just not tracking the whole time. And it's like, this practice. Perfect. Go be intuitive enjoy everything just don't overeat be mindful and like it's a, it's literally a period of time to practice and then when she gets back we can assess right those are kind of the things i like to implement first because now people get used to not tracking and they can actually practice being intuitive intelligently and then after we do that a few times we can start saying like okay now let's actually start removing it for a longer period of time like let's go two weeks without tracking any macros and just see what your weight does and then we'll track every once in a while to kind of just see where you're just naturally hitting yeah and we track after the fact so in that scenario you might go two weeks without tracking and then you eat a full day of eating and you track it the next day that way what you track doesn't determine what you eat but you're just tracking based off what you already ate because that's actually intuitive right if i track first intuitively i'm not being intuitive yeah um and we see where it's at. If it's not where it should be or it's not at maintenance, then maybe we adjust or we come back to track for a little bit or just reintegrate it. Um, but essentially, it's it's kind of like just slowly stopping, you know. Um, damn near anything in life, you can't really cold turkey it yeah. for the most part. So it's, it's literally about like slowly but surely just removing the app and the numbers and things like that, the food scale until, you know. And that's a good way to do it too. Like start with your lean meats and proteins. Stop weighing those, right? Can you look at a chicken breast and go, I'm going to guess it's about five ounces, you know, and do that. And for people tracking macros, this sounds like weird, but gamify it right now. When I go to measure foods, I will literally gamify it. And I'm like, all right, that is six and a half ounces. And then I'll weigh it and I'll see how close I am. You know what I mean? I do this with, even with peanut butter, like I'll like scoop my peanut butter and I literally, and Shannon gives me shit because I'll say it out loud. Like this is going to be 28 grams. And sometimes I get it like dead on. Sometimes it's like a gram or two off, which is close enough. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is make sure that we're just being able to start guessing and understanding what it is. So when we get to the point where we're just completely removing the food scale, we're pretty close to where we should be. And we know how to do that intuitively. Yeah, totally. So. All right, cool. We will go to the next one here. And that will be from Irihem11. So I'm trying to lose body fat and I'm currently going to the gym five days a week. Do I really have to do abs? <laughs> Uh, this is do a good, you have to, you don't have to, <laughs> you can do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. But, um, I think like what I, what I typically try to tell people and I'll use like a good story of mine that this is, you know, 
This is, uh, and this is actually something I'm going through right now. I'm actually doing abs every single training session. I start my workout, like as I'm doing my warm up, I do sit ups, ab wheel, or hanging leg raise, some kind of flexion based sit up or flexion based ab exercise, just because those tend to contract your abs the most from an aesthetic perspective. If I'm going for function, we'll do like rotation, anti rotation, stuff like that. But, um, but the reason is is twofold. One, because I was reading old school uh, bodybuilding books from like old, old athlete stuff. And that's what they all did. They just, every single day you just train abs. The other reason is because your abs are active in almost every functional exercise you do. So they're getting a lot of attention no matter what, but they're not getting hard contractions from doing a squat. They're just bracing. So because of that, I don't like, I don't like having an ab day for people. Cause if you have an ab day, and if anybody's ever done this, you have like an ab day, you do a ton of ab work and it feels great because afterwards your abs are just on fire. You feel like you got great work. And then the next day you go to do like a bench press or an overhead press or a squat. And it's like hard because your abs are cramping yeah. and it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> so like now my squat is suffering because my abs are so cramped from me doing a thousand sit-ups. That's just stupid. I would rather break up the frequency so I don't have that delayed soreness. And I just do three sets of 10 every single day of the week. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just enough to stimulate them and feel them, but not enough to hurt the next day. So that's what I'm doing right now. And the other reason I'm doing it is because I've done many cuts. I've done photo, multiple photo shoots. I've done a physique show. And every time my abs just weren't that impressive, even though I've, I have friends and people, colleagues in the industry who I got leaner then and their abs were still more impressive. And the reason is because I just never trained abs. I actually find it really boring. I don't enjoy it. It's not mm -hmm. as progressive as doing weightlifting and I just never did it. Yeah. So when I did my physique show, I maintained muscle really well. I got super fucking lean. And I was, my abs just weren't that great. So looking back at all those things and understanding that like abs are a muscle. So if I want my bicep to peak higher and have a bigger muscle, I got to do curls. So it's the same thing. So in this scenario, you just want to lose fat. Do you need to do abs? Absolutely not. Abs are probably the least calorically expending exercise you can do, you know, outside of maybe hip abductions, you know, something simple. But like, if you think about it, how many calories do you burn doing a workout that has a bench press, a deadlift and some like heavy lunges? Probably a lot. That's a lot of muscle groups. And on top of that, when you're doing a deadlift, your lats, your glutes, and your hamstrings are working a ton. Those are the three biggest muscle groups in your entire body. You're going to burn a lot of calories. Your abs are not that big of muscle groups. And when I'm doing a sit-up, I'm barely moving my whole body. And I'm laying on the floor. Yeah. It's just not that dynamic. Um, and there's no overload there. If you're holding some weight, it's probably not that heavy. So they're not going to be burning many calories doing them at all. And you can't spot reduce. So just because I'm creating tension there doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to burn fat there. Um, so you don't need them for fat loss. However, if your goal is to get lean, and, and again, I have experience with this too. When I first lost all the weight, I lost way back over a decade ago now. When I lost that weight, I remember looking in the mirror and just being like, fuck, that's not what I thought this would look like. I just look skinny fat now. And I'm like looking at people and like, fitness magazines and thinking like, I just got to lose this weight. I'm going to look jacked. And I just lost a bunch of weight and then I just look kind of skinny. And I was like, oh, well, fuck, this didn't work out. And so I had to end up building muscle. But the point is, is you can remove all this fat. If you have no muscle underneath, it's not going to look the way you want to look. Most likely. Some people don't give a shit about that. But if you're after like a dense, lean, athletic physique, you're going to have to lose fat and build muscle or build muscle first and then lose fat, right? So in this scenario, the best thing for you to do is to train abs so that instead of you having to get you know, with women, it's a little bit harder with body fat percentages, but for men, let's say I don't have to get to eight to 8% to see my abs. I can be at like 10, 11 or 12% and see my abs really well now. 
Why? Because I built my abs from a hypertrophy perspective, so they're popping out more. So you're going to see them sooner. You don't have to get so fucking lean, which makes having abs more sustainable long-term. So I would recommend everybody train abs simply because most people, when they get lean, they do want to see some muscle and they want to see some abs rather than just getting really lean and being like, oh shit, there's still nothing there. It's just flatter, Um, which is still better. You're getting healthier, you're losing weight. But if you want to see the definition, you want to see the abs, you got to train them. You know what I mean? I I, like, it's the same thing with uh, talk women that want to lose weight around their arms. And it's like doing tricep extensions isn't going to do shit for the fat on your tricep. However, if we do tricep extension and we build that muscle, eventually when we lose that fat, we are going to end up having more muscle underneath, Yeah. right? And that's what's going to look better. So I think there's a combination here of things like for fat loss intensive purposes, sit-ups ain't going to do much for you at all. But if you want to get lean and actually see something underneath that fat when you lose it, you should probably do sit-ups. Yeah. Yeah. And I would recommend doing them daily. It's, It's wild that you think they're, they're boring. I think that's like a minority opinion. 100%. 100%. Okay. Yeah. I know a lot of people that would train abs all the time. Yeah. You know, I just, I don't know. I've always been into, I like lifting. I like doing a lot <laughs> of exercise too. That's why I like upper body days so much more than lower body days because lower upper body, you have more muscle groups and there's more variations to get done, mm. right? Lower body, if you do too many variations, you just fucking get tired way too easy because your legs are so big and you're really only working your, you know, for me, quads and hamstrings, a little bit of glutes. Women, you can add the glutes in there too. Some people calves, but like for your back, you got your traps, rhomboids, rear delts, lats, spinal rectors, chest, shoulders, triceps, biceps. There's just so much to do. Good. You know, you have a lot of fun. Yeah. So I think with sit-ups is like, you can only do so much, yeah. you know, but, but again, some people fucking love it. And I think it's the idea of what they're doing that people love most because most people who love doing ab workouts, they don't know, they don't understand the concept I just talked about. Yeah. You know what I mean? They want abs and they think about abs. So they just do a bunch of abs and they, they have fun with it because of that. But when you know that other things you can do are actually going to reveal those abs better, you don't have to do as much abs. I think people would probably have less fun with it. Yeah. You know? All right. Cool. Um, so we will go to the next question here from Cody Olson seven says, what should you do to warm up before you lift? Depends. We'll put a, uh, a link to this in the show notes of the podcast, but I did a, uh, what do we call that? How to do a dynamic warm-up or something dynamic like that? Dynamic warm-up tutorial? Or? Something like that. Yeah. Um, so we did a whole video on this, and I literally, I mean, it's like 10 plus minutes. I broke down every little aspect. So uh, we'll link that so you guys can check that out because I think that'll be super helpful. But, you know, a dynamic warm-up... Number one, research shows that a dynamic warm-up, so there's, there's studies that show, compare three different things. Not necessarily three things in a single study, but after looking at all these different studies, you can find three different conclusions. Number one, no warm-up versus a full dynamic warm-up, your performance is going to be better. You know, And this hurts me sometimes because I'm just in a rush to get to the gym and lifting that I skip the warm-up, and it does hurt performance. They have research that shows this. Um, the other one is that a dynamic warm-up is better than a static stretching warm-up. So like dynamic stretching versus static stretching, essentially. Dynamic stretching would be for like, for people who know like the world's greatest stretch. You bring your foot forward, you kind of get into a lunge, you lock out your leg, you rotate your back, you're doing movements as you stretch. So you're stretching, but you're moving through them dynamically. Mm-hmm. Static stretching is where I'm laying down and I'm holding my toes and doing a hamstring stretch. And I just hold that position. But when we hold positions in a static stretch, what ends up happening is we actually reduce strength. And I want to say it's around 
30% what they have seen, you can reduce your neurological strength by 30% in a muscle by stretching it too much before, which makes sense because if you look at a bench press or an RDL, one of the most fatiguing parts of the lift is the eccentric, right? When we're lowering the bar or when we're sitting back into the RDL and we're stretching the hamstrings. And the reason it's fatiguing is you're stretching the muscle fibers and breaking them down under load. So if we do a bunch of static stretching, which is causing some muscle tissue prior to training, our muscles are fatigued. Yeah. How are we going to train hard? Um, but that's why yoga, stuff like that is great because static right. stretching leads to more flexibility as yeah. well. At least as, as hard as you could if you hadn't done that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you st- you still might get a good training session yeah. in, but you'd train harder and with more load and get fatigued less f- quickly if you didn't static stretch prior. But static stretching is good because if you increase flexibility and range of motion, now my range of motion for that bench press or RDL the next day or following days later when I do it is better. Mm-hmm. And if we have more range of motion, we're probably going to build more muscle, Yeah, um, which we just did a research review on that as well. Um Actually, it's probably not out as this po- this yeah, comes out. We just recorded it, but it will be out soon. But um, so with that being said, I think a, a warm-up should include a few things. The first thing I like to include in a warm-up for most people is going to be a five-minute cardio bout, right? So doing cardio for just five minutes with the pure goal of getting your heart rate up and getting your core temperature up. So when we get our heart rate up, we're essentially just – activating a a metabolic process that allows us to train a little bit better, right? So um, studies show this being good as well, right? Just just five to 10 minutes of cardio prior to exercise at a low intensity pace. So nothing crazy. You're not doing high intensity intervals. You're not going on a run. You're literally like walking on an incline treadmill or walking at a brisk pace on a treadmill and maybe getting to a jog pace. Um, Perfect world scenario, I would choose a row, sled, or an assault bike, there's less concentric components to it, and they loosen up the joints better. Um, the the knee traveling over the toe during a sled is good for you. The cyclical pattern of a bike is actually mimicking a squat pattern if you take one leg by itself. Um, and a row is is doing rowing. You know, that's retraction of your scapula over and over again. That's good for bench pressing, all that kind of stuff. Um, but nonetheless, five minutes of cardio, then going into some dynamic stretching and movement. So walking lunges with overhead reach. So doing a big step forward and then reaching all the way up overhead and getting some thoracic extension um, and overhead mobility while you're doing lunges, doing some hip flexor stretches with either rotation or lateral rotation. So lifting your arm up overhead and leaning to the side, doing band over and back. So you're doing basically like band dislocation. So going traction, retraction over and back over your head with a band, um, elbows locked out. Um, I mean, there's so many different things, hip, uh, hip flex or, uh, shin boxes with glute stretch and hip flexor stretching included in that the greatest, the world's greatest stretch. Like I talked about earlier, thoracic mobility, as far as like uh, thread, the needle prone thoracic extension, there's just so many, right. Um, I always like to throw band pull parts or face pulls in there as well, just to fire the rear delts and traps a little bit. Cause that's going to help literally every lift you do, um, But like as a whole, I'm moving through all those things and I'm taking pauses. I'm doing big extended range of motion, stretching muscles while I'm moving through them. Um, And my heart rate's already up because I did a little bit of cardio and now I'm moving even more so. Um, But the main goal, I would say, if you're going to do a dynamic warm-up, obviously you want to be specific to what you're doing. So if it's an upper body day, you're going to be more focused on the shoulder health, thoracic health, stuff like that. Um, the face pulls, the pull parts, band dislocations. If you're doing lower body, more hip flexor stuff, more shin boxes, more glute stretching, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I think it's a good practice to do the full body dynamic warm up every single session because 
if you want to improve your lifting as a whole and your movement quality as a whole, then the best thing you can possibly do is consistently work on these mobility efforts, which means that if I'm doing a little bit of upper body before every session, my upper body mobility is going to improve. Same with my lower body mobility. So even though it's not leg day, I'm still warming up and dynamically doing my, my legs as well. Um, but that's how I would break down a dynamic warm-up. And then I would save uh, static stretching for post-workout. Um, and if you want to throw foam rolling in, you can throw foam rolling into that dynamic warm-up because it does increase uh, range of motion temporarily um, and may have a neurological component as well, um, which can be good prior to training. But as, as well as I can break it down in just audio without like doing a video, which you can find on YouTube uh, in, the, in the show notes of this podcast, then uh, I think that's it. Cool. I want to take a brief moment to interrupt this podcast and shout out our sponsor, Legion Athletics, the world's number one best-selling brand of all natural sports supplements. Guys, if you're listening to this, you probably take supplements. I'm assuming you take a whey protein. You probably have some pre-workout. If you're really focused on health, you might take a, a multivitamin, a greens drink, a fish oil, whatever it is. Legion probably has it. And they are going to be using science-backed ingredients. Everything is actually dosed effectively and clinically proven. Everything is naturally sweetened and flavored. Everything is lab tested, made in the U.S., and you're going to get a money-back guarantee. So the reason I'm bringing this up is not only because they're a podcast sponsor, but I truly value the team at Legion, and I truly value what they are doing in the supplement space. And one of the things that is really frustrating for a lot of people that come to us is trying to find a brand where they can actually get quality supplements and they can trust the result that's going to come from them. Most people just search Amazon for the best result they can find, and they trust Amazon reviewers. And don't get me wrong. If something has a lot of stars and good reviews, that's awesome. But you can also pay people to leave reviews. So go with a company that you can trust that is backed up not only by science and actual researchers in the lab doing things, but coaches like myself who have tons of experience and use the stuff on a regular basis. So guys, stop wasting money. Stop searching and searching and searching for the best product out there and just jump on Legion Athletics. They are the best and I promise you that. You can head over to buylegion.com slash boom boom and save 20% on your first order and start earning points so you can get kickbacks on future orders and eventually free products. So one more time, that's buylegion.com slash boom boom. Without any further ado, let's get back into the podcast. All right, we will move to the next one, which comes from Carissa Klobucher. Klobucher. Do you think someone should only do CrossFit workouts or should they bodybuild too? This, this may be her first podcast listening. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've talked about this quite a bit. Um, this is a really good question because I think that a lot of people get confused with training for aesthetics. I think that there's a ton of people who go into CrossFit because that's the option they have and they do it with a body composition goal in mind, right? They do it thinking like, I'm going to do this and lose weight. And, and granted, like it works, you know, it works for some people and some people do better with CrossFit because it's a group environment and their issue isn't necessarily anything outside of motivation, right? They can do the work, but they need a culture and a community around them, training with them, pushing them, encouraging them in order for them to consistently do it. But at a certain point, when somebody gets more specific about how lean they want to get, um, if they want to build muscle in certain areas and stuff like that, then the problem becomes CrossFit is highly specific to performance of CrossFit and not to bodybuilding, right? And if we just look at the name of bodybuilding, it's to build your body, right? And sometimes I wish people would say physique training because I think, especially women, when you hear bodybuilding, you don't necessarily think like body composition changes. You yeah. think 
huge jacked steroid dudes yeah. on stage in a speedo. You know, and like I don't want that image for people because bodybuilding is literally just it's it's resistance training for somebody who wants to enhance their body. Period. Or the so, physique. Or the physique. Yeah. So basically. What this means is that should somebody just do CrossFit or should they add bodybuilding? Well, my question to you is, do you want to just be good at CrossFit or do you want to change your body? Because if you just want to be good at CrossFit, if that's your goal, then yeah, just do CrossFit. Bodybuilding is not going to help you be a better CrossFitter unless, you know, one, you need to lose fat in order to be better at gymnastics. So when it comes to the push-ups, the rope climbs, the muscle-ups, the, you know, endurance-based stuff, you're just too heavy. Bodybuilding could, but more like diet yeah. than anything. Um, and then on the other side, if you're just too weak in a certain area or you don't have enough muscle tissue in a certain area, then you might need some bodybuilding just to, to add some volume into a certain muscle group in order to build that muscle group and be better at CrossFit. But for the most part, like people um, who want to improve their body or anything should do bodybuilding. People who want to get better at CrossFit should do CrossFit. So if we're somebody who wants both, which there are plenty of people listening are like, I love CrossFit but my main goal is to look better. I don't necessarily think you should give up CrossFit, you know, because if that's keeping you motivated to train, the last thing I want to do is put you on a bodybuilding program six days a week that you feel super boring and now you don't want to do anything, right? And your effort goes to shit. So in that case, 50-50, you know, at the end of the day, like bodybuilding is going to help the aesthetic. So what I would do in a situation like for her, if she is doing CrossFit five days a week and she's like, I love CrossFit. However, I really want to build and develop my glutes and hamstrings, right? And I'm trying to get leaner. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nutrition coaching for dieting because that's going to get you leaner. So hire a nutrition coach. We're the best. So there's a link in the description if you want to work with us. But do your diet because that's ultimately what's going to cause fat loss. Do CrossFit three days a week and just try to get better at CrossFit because you enjoy that. And then you get more competitive in your community and all that. And then two days a week, you do bodybuilding training for your glutes, hamstrings, and abs maybe. Or glutes, hamstrings, and then anything that is not in CrossFit. And this is where... High-level CrossFitters do implement more specific training as, like, accessory work. So they might have – and a lot of times they're doing two-a-days. They're doing really long sessions, so it's hard for normal people. But they'll do CrossFit, and then they might have some sessions where they add on volume or they have a separate day where they do something like um, – I guess it depends on what they're missing. But a lot of times people will be underdeveloped in certain areas because of CrossFit, right? There's a lot of vertical and horizontal – or, I'm sorry, vertical uh, – pushing and pulling, like overhead pressing, cleaning jerks, uh, rope climbs, pull-ups. There's not that much rowing. There's not that many inverted rows, dumbbell rows, stuff like that in CrossFit. There's also not that much bench pressing and push-ups and stuff like that in CrossFit. So maybe doing some isolation bodybuilding work for horizontal pushing and pulling just to balance things out and then working on body parts that you want to develop. Like that would be your best bet because I'd be ignorant to think that there's not people listening who want more than one thing. You know, we all have multiple goals. It's very hard yeah. for anybody to say, this is my only fucking goal. Um, unless you're an elite bodybuilder. Yeah. And in that sense, like your goal is to be the best bodybuilder. I mean, do you have a period of time where your goal is just to build muscle and a period of time where your goal is just to lose fat? And that's all you care about. But even that, that's not just one thing. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's two things and you're phasing back and forth. Yeah. For the people who are more like me and some of the people listening that, uh, it's just, I want to get leaner and look better, but I also want more muscle. And I, I really want to be healthier though too. You know, I don't want to like sacrifice sleep and hormones and, and digestion health like that. And I want to move better. I want better mobility and all that stuff. You know, now we're, we're going into the territory of doing multiple things. And this is where we do need to get more creative with training. Um, and I don't think sticking with one modality is the best bet. No. 
All right, cool. We go to the next one. It comes from Be Well with Denzel. Let's go. Do you do you still offer mentorships? Yes and no. I don't. Like, we don't, you know, like, we just sell coaching. Like, we just sell nutrition coaching and tailored training. You know, that's that's our thing. We don't have ebooks. We don't have a mentorship. We've done a mentorship course, um, and it really did well. I mean, it was a successful thing. It was profitable. People got a lot out of it. It was great. Um, it just, it took us away from our main thing, which is being the best coaching company to coach people on how to lose fat and change your body and get healthy. Um, but I, I still, I'd be lying if I said I didn't mentor people. So I still work with some people uh, and there's potentially going to be an opportunity to do something similar to this in the new year, uh, not just with me, but with somebody that I would be partnering with it on because I don't have the desire to do it solo. But um, I'd be doing it with somebody who would have live events, more like business and life focused than anything. Um, so it's not like a uh, training or nutrition mentorship. However, I do have a coach on our staff that has done and is doing nutrition mentorship. So we even have uh, senior coaches on our team that are more than e equipped enough to do the nutrition mentoring. So um, if you are a coach and, and that's something that interests you and you're like, I want coaching, accountability and systems, stuff, stuff like that, just to get better at coaching itself definitely apply for coaching or reach out to us because there's a lot of different things we can help with. Obviously just going through our experiences or our systems and our coaching is going to teach you a ton. Cause we're, um, I mean, this sounds biased, but like we're one of the elite companies at this. So if you want to learn how to do it, well, obviously hire us. And then we have a couple of mentorship options, uh, now with my team and then also coming up in the future. So if you are interested, hit me up. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about it and share it with you, but there's nothing like formal concrete on our website that you can find like we do for coaching. Cool. So. Absolutely. All right. Um, we'll go to the next one. It comes from Carrie Hines. It says, how do you approach lower body strength training when you have a large or when you have a long-term hip injury that prevents squatting, lunging, and unilateral movements. My doctor says to delay hip replacement to avoid these movements and stick to deadlift and hip thrust, but your podcast this week said deadlifts won't build by glutes in hypertrophy. Rather than what I can't do, what, can, what rather than what I can't do, what can I do? How do you coach clients who don't have, who don't just have short-term injuries? This one was definitely from the email or Facebook. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay, so what was the exact injury at the beginning she said? Uh, she just has long-term hip injury that prevents squatting, lunging, unilateral movement. Okay. Lunging, squatting, and unilateral. Wow, that's a lot. Um, and and how, so how do we work around that, basically? What can you do? Yeah. Um, it's really hard for me to say, and, and I got to be cautious with saying anything black and white because I'm not your physical therapist. <laughs> so I don't want to say anything too concrete, but, um, so the few things here, number one, I did say that deadlifts are not a great glute hypertrophy exercise. And I still believe that, um, there's just not that much tension placed on the glutes for an extended period of time, you go into a deep stretch at the very tail end of it, and then that's it, right? And if you're doing heavy deadlifts, it's such a quick concentric that you're not even really placing much tension over the muscle anyway. Whereas like a hip thrust, you have that stretch component just like a deadlift, but you also have a very hard contraction because at the top of a hip thrust, unlike most exercises, you're in hip extension, contracting your glutes maximally while a load is directly over your hip resisting that extension. So you're literally applying as much force through the glute as possible into a barbell and a load, which is exactly what we want to do to build muscle. Deadlifts don't really do that, right? So um, with that being said, I think that 
deadlifts are never going to be that great for hypertrophy, but they are great for strength. If you increase your strength, you also have the potential to increase hypertrophy later on, obviously. So it's not like I'm saying don't do deadlifts if your goal is hypertrophy or, or to build muscle or body composition changes. still think they're useful, uh, but they're not the my number one go-to for glutes, right? And then so the next part of this is that what can you do? It's really hard to say when I don't know what your injury is. I mean, you not squatting or lunging or doing any unilateral, I mean, is that like an anterior hip, posterior hip, lateral hip? Is it even your hip? Is it, you know, we can look above, below. Is it your lumbar spine or is it your knee that's actually causing hip dysfunction? Um, where's the pain actually residing at? So there's a lot of reasons why I can't really answer this question. But you know your ranges of motion. So, for example, if you sitting down and doing hip abduction, so like pulling your legs apart, driving your knees outward, does not bug your hips – sit down, load up a hip ex- a hip abduction machine or a band or whatever, and do a lot of volume with hip ab- abductions, you know? If uh, it's just unilateral work that you can't do, and you can do, like, bilateral bridges, so hip thrust, glute bridges, stuff like that, do a ton of those. Um, there's a lot of people who have had hip issues that do really well with reverse hypers, and that actually helps build their hip and their low back strength. So if it's a low back issue, maybe you look into reverse hypers. I'd be cautious because some people... I mean, Louis Simmons broke his fucking back powerlifting and the reverse hyper was a piece of equipment he created in order to rehabilitate himself. Now it's really well known. We have one coming in the mail. It's one of the machines I got. And, uh, but for some people, it's actually the opposite of what you want to do. It makes it worse. So you got to know if you're, uh, if it's a low back issue, are you, uh, flexion, extension or rotation intolerant, which basically means like, does your back hurt when you round your back? Does your back hurt when you extend your back or does your back hurt when you rotate your back? That'll determine what you should be strengthening or working on. Um, but nonetheless, again, it's hard to say, you know, cause I don't know what your specific thing is. So I would probably do isolation exercises that don't bug it. You know, if you can do a standing kickback cables or a reverse hyper or a bridge or a hip abduction, whatever, just put a ton of volume on whatever exercises don't take you into a range of motion that creates more pain. Cause if you keep going further and further into pain, you're most likely going to cause more and more injury. Mm. Plain and simple. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's uh, move into the next one. Let's see here. We got one from Neil Miller it says, I have a client that has gastric band surgery so she literally can't consume more than 700 calories a day, and she can't fit any more food in her stomach. She lost over 60 pounds and has another 30 to go. My, I have two questions. First is, have you ever had a client who's gone through this surgery? Second uh, question is, uh, surely there must be some more severe metabolic and, and hormonal adaptations that cannot be cannot be improved as a res, res, reverse diet isn't possible given the stomach size of her stomach. Uh, did he say it was a sleeve, a bypass a gastric sleeve, or no? Okay, gastric band. Okay, so okay, so it's very similar. So, um, typically those things don't last forever. So, uh, when you say there's got to be some metabolic adaptations or or hormonal adaptations that are occurring, definitely, um, that are non-reversible, not true, because I've seen plenty of people get this type of surgery who have actually ended up gaining the weight back because the band expands or rips and it doesn't last forever. You know what I mean? So, um, now what I would say is I would imagine, I don't know of any research that actually shows this, but what I would imagine is that there's gotta be some kind of, uh, hunger hormone changes that goes on when you do this. You know, if you shrink your stomach and you restrict how much food can go in there, 
I got to imagine, like, I mean, you think about it, you go into a big deficit, we see all these hunger hormone adaptations, leptin, ghrelin, and then sex hormones, stress hormones, cortisol, thyroid, progesterone, testosterone, all these things change as well. Just from eating less. Now you're being forced to eating less and you're shrinking an organ. I got to imagine that some of the hormones are secreted because of the size of, of that organ or because of how much you can eat in that organ, you know? So... My guess is that, yes, absolutely something's got to be going on in there that would cause adaptations to occur. Most likely they are reversible because at some point I don't think that band's going to last forever. This is why I don't think it's a great, great choice. Now, the other side of it is, you know, technically they do this because when you shrink the stomach, you can't eat as much. If you can't eat as much, guess what? You're in deficit. Yeah. Right. I think what happens is people do that. They lose weight and then they get to a point where metabolic adaptation occurs. Right. So now they're not losing weight anymore. So what do we normally do? We take a diet break. We bring them to maintenance. We reverse. We stay up there for a while. Problem with them is like, let's say she needs to reverse and she needs to slowly add a thousand calories to her diet to do that over six months. Or even if it was 500 calories to her diet over less months, she can't. Because her stomach physically. is physically smaller. She can't fit food in there, which is why it's not a good idea. So if you you run into this problem of metabolic adaptation happening and you need to reverse diet or heal, I don't like saying the word heal, but like um, get your metabolism, your health in a better place, but the only route in doing that is by eating more food, you're fucked. Yeah. You like literally can't because you can't fit any more food in there. You know, the cup is full. So I think that it's hard to say what do you do um, because there's really nothing you can do. I mean, you could reverse really slow and see if that band will expand. Kind of a waste of money for the surgery. Yeah. But, you know, the way I would look at that is like, okay, he said he she lost how much? 60 pounds and that's 30 more to go. So my, my guess would be like, you you know, you, you're, you're rolling dice and you're seeing like, okay, this gastric band or sleeve, how much is it going to let me lose? You're, in your case, it was 60. And now you kind of stall out, right? Doesn't have anywhere to go. Yeah. So um, I feel bad ending this question without an answer, but it's like, dude, like, what can you do? Yeah, you know I mean, you can exercise more, but you're going to adapt to that too, you know. So I think no matter what, the this is why surgeries for weight loss just aren't the best bet. They just don't last long. They're not. It's obviously, nonetheless, it, it's it's a quick. It's it's an attempt at a quick fix, um, that requires next to zero discipline, you know, and I think part of the reason why fat loss works and all those things is because mentally you change, right? When you grow in fitness and life and business and anything, you create discipline that overrides motivation. You don't need motivation to do anything because you have discipline. That's what it's for. Um, which is like that post I just had recently. I said, uh, something along those lines, right? Like motivation is a, uh, an endless path to hoping for results. Mm. The reason I said it is because you just keep watching other people win, for motivation, right? And you're like, God, I'm going to do that someday. I'm going to, I'm going to get fired up and I'm going to take action and do this. And it's like, I'm just watching other people living vicariously through their success and hoping that I can do something similar instead of actually just saying, fuck this YouTube video and going and take action. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then the hack thing, which is what this is, is what I said in that as well is a hack is just a lazy man's uh, way of trying to like for a quick fix. You know, it's a lazy man's guide to really nothing like non-lasting results because in this case, it is the lazy way out. Like, I'm sorry for anybody who has gone through this and we've all made lazy decisions in our life. So it's nothing against you. I've done it too. But in this specific situation, the lazy path is like, I'm going to just get surgery and fix my weight loss issue, you know? And now I'm going to have these adaptations occur 10 times faster. I'm not going to be able to reverse them as easily. And I'm kind of screwing myself from future success. You know what I mean? And even then too, it's like, man, even if you lost that other 30 pounds with the gastric sleeve or band, 
if you're calorie, I know people that have done it that, uh, I had, I dated a girl, her sister got it. And it's like, you can only eat like less than a hundred thousand calories a day or some shit. A hundred thousand. Oh, but just imagine that. Yeah. Like I'm on a diet and I eat 2,500 calories and I'm like 23 right now, I think. And I'm losing weight. So like maintaining my weight is like 25 to 3000. And that's like, I feel good. I feel satiated and stuff. A thousand calories. I just like, it would not only like, yeah, your stomach's smaller. So maybe you don't need to eat as much, but you couldn't maintain muscle as well. You couldn't perform as well. I guarantee you have some productivity energy, uh, decreases because of that. And then on top of all that flexibility, you go to the cheesecake factory and the healthiest salad is 1200 calories. Yeah. So like, how the fuck are you supposed to go have any type of flexible dinner or diet or uh, birthday or anything you like don't. that? You don't. You can't. Yeah. You, you know, a, a slice of birthday cake is your whole day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like just, it's crazy. Um, and I mean, I guess that's that's actually like a good piece of advice too. Like as you, you know, if you do try to reverse diet them slowly, you're reversing them by like five grams carbs a week or whatever. Yeah. Two grams of fat. But you can choose very dense foods, you know what I mean, that are less voluminous, which is usually the opposite of what we tell people. Like, um, usually with dieting, I want to help, help people choose voluminous foods because then they eat less calories and it fills them up more, right? But in this, this scenario, maybe we go with a higher fat approach and we have more oil and more avocado and things like that that aren't super filling, but they pack a ton of calories in it. So now we can actually fill her tiny little stomach up with more calories and less total volume. Mm. Um, so actually the contrary, the complete opposite advice is I would give anybody who had reverse dieting. But, um, but yeah, that's my answer. I mean, not much of a, a solution, but more of just a, a, a rant on the idea of this surgery as a whole and, and the potential things you could do. Yeah. Um, and it's a patient's game because a lot of times they don't last. So, All right, that's good, man. So uh, let's move on to the last question we have here from Callie Montea Houston. says, how, how would you program a muscle building routine for someone who consistently gets 20 to 20, 20 to 25,000 steps a day due to their job. They work 45 hours a day loading UPS trucks and rack rack up that many steps five days a week. As a female, their goal is to build muscle, but have been plateaued for quite a while now. They have their macros listed and there's training. Okay. Um, my advice is going to be the same regardless of what your macros and training look like. Um, the reality is, is that, you know, uh, like your body's going to adapt to that. So, you know, 20 to 25,000 calories is a ton. Yeah. I, I mean, steps is a ton. I mean, that's a ton of calories too. <laughs> um, you're, gain, you're gaining size with that. Uh, but like, that's a lot of fucking steps. However, you know, we, t- we, of course, we've done a research review on this too. We had a research review on NEAT. And when we were talking about it, I, my, my question, Brandon, was based on the research, like, is there any threshold for adaptation? Meaning, yeah, it's great when you keep stepping more, but at a certain point, does it just get less beneficial? And the answer is yes. And I think it was right around between 15 and 20,000 steps, which means that as we're trying to lose weight and stuff, like you go from 5,000 to 7,000 steps, you're going to burn more calories and lose more fat. That's going to be good for you because it's essentially cardio, right? Neat. You go from 7,000 to 10,000. Again, you can do that over and over again until you're at between 15 to 20,000. It's going to depend on the person. Obviously, everybody's different. And at that point, you just stop burning more calories the more you go, right? Um, So they looked at this tribe in Africa. I couldn't tell you the tribe. And uh, I can't even tell you the book for sure. There's a book about walking. But essentially, it looked at the metabolic like adaptations of it, right? So they looked at, essentially, there's these like hunter and gatherer tribes who step 
20, 30, 40, 50,000 steps a day. Like just tons because all they do. That's all they do. They're yeah. hunting and gathering all day. Yeah. So all they do is walk. And the question is like, how do they not? And they basically compared those two people stepping 10,000 steps a day over here. They didn't burn any more calories than the people over here did. Why is that? They adapted to what they do, right? At first, when they first started walking, I guarantee it. They did. Oh, yeah. They were probably burning a ton. But the body needs to adapt in order to preserve fuel so that it can keep doing that. Yeah. Right? If it was that calorically expending every time, they wouldn't be able to consistently do it. They'd be sore. They'd be tired. They'd be lethargic. But over time, they get better at it. They progressively overload their walking, essentially. Um, And it changed that. So when we look at steps, like this person... Just because she steps that much doesn't mean she can't build muscle. Like, yeah, that's a lot of steps. And typically we would say, like, we don't want to do that much cardio because it'll burn too many calories for you to be in an energy surplus and allow yourself to weight, gain weight and muscle. But, like, in that scenario, I actually don't think it's that big of a deal. You just need to make sure your training is on point and they probably need to eat more calories. So, um, I don't know where, like I said, I don't really care where the calories are, but like if they're in a surplus, they're gaining weight. Yeah. So if she's eating a good amount of food and you're like, I don't know how to get her to gain more weight, like you can control the movement in any way you can. So her steps from work, they are what they are. But like outside of that, no cardio, no high intensity stuff in the workouts. You don't want to burn too many calories and you just keep trying to add calories. I mean, people say this all the time, like I'm struggling to gain muscle and I'm like, all right, are you eating enough calories? Like oh, I'm eating so much food. I'm like, well, you're not eating enough. Like, I don't care if it feels like it's a lot or if it's hard. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're not eating enough, you're not going to gain, right? So if she's eating a lot and she's still not building any muscle, she's not eating enough. You got to find a way to get her to eat more food. I mean, this is why bodybuilders used to wake up in the middle of the night with an alarm and have a meal. Like literally, like Jay Cutler, there's like documentaries that I used to watch for bodybuilding that he would like wake up at three in the morning, alarm would go off and he'd have like a protein shake and some almonds or like a bar or something on his nightstand. He'd just wake up tired as fuck, chug a protein shake, eat something and just fall back asleep. They just needed more calories, you know? He even says in the, the documentary, he says, he's like, I don't like food. I don't like eating. He's like, when I'm done bodybuilding, like, like they ask like, what, what are you going to eat? Like when prep's over, you know, like, cause you can have cheat meals. He's, he's like, I'm not going to eat. I fucking hate eating. <laughs> he's like, I just eat, so weird. I eat so much food. You're in the wrong industry. I mean, yes and no, he was a champion. I mean, Jay Culler was fucking, I mean, Ronnie Coleman, all those guys think about like being 300 pounds, but like jacked and ripped. I get it. But I'm saying he's in the wrong industry because he doesn't like eating. He needs to eat a lot to do that. Yeah. Or he's in the right industry. If you think about it, because the hardest, so the, the hardest part about it is getting shredded, right? And it's really hard to get shredded if you love food. If you're a foodie and you love yeah. eating now, you know what I mean? So if you hate food, it might actually be easy. T- comes time to diet and you're like, fuck, yes, this is easy. Eat so less. Whatever is, easy, is, whatever is easier, not eating or eating because you have to go through both phases yeah. for bodybuilding. Exactly, yeah. yeah, 100%. All right, cool. Well, that is it. So uh, we, I mean... It's a wrap. It's, it's it, going to be past Thanksgiving, but happy. Yeah. hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, leave us a five-star rating review. If anybody has any uh, recommendations on uh, if there's like a, a, a catnip for dogs to get this bulldog to chill the fuck out while we're podcasting. I, w- I almost wish people knew. Like, thank God for editing, but <laughs> it's not the easiest thing because he just wants to play right now. But uh, if there's catnip for dogs or if there's any vets out there that know how to calm them down, let me know. You know what catnip is? Absolutely. Okay. There absolutely is. For dogs? Yeah. Oh, what's it called? Dog nip? Probably. 
Have you seen it? Just Google it, dude. I mean, it's 21st century, man. Yeah, probably, you think people? I, I mean, I just saw. I mean, I've seen CBD at Petco, but I don't think that's going to do it. There's everything for everything. Yeah, there's quite a bit. Yeah. But all right, cool. Well, we will see you next week. Yeah.